Hey everybody, hope you're doing well, staying safe, staying sane, staying in shape. For me, those three are one and the same. This is the San Diego Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy podcast by and for members of the gym, where we will be highlighting some of our members at the gym and their stories to give you a little insight into the people at the gym and how Jiu-Jitsu has impacted their lives. Uh, my guest today is Sensei Adam Schmaltz. I can't say enough good things about this guy. He's somebody I really look up to, a stellar example of a martial artist in every sense of the word. He's taught me so much about both jujitsu and people. Um, he started off as a student under Sensei Paolo about 15 years ago and then became a teacher for both adults and kids. And now he's the right arm at the gym and our go-to guy for just about anything that needs to get done and get done well. Uh, I really admire him, and we had a great conversation. A lot of great insights and gold nuggets came out of this one, as is typical with just about any conversation we'll have with Adam. So, please welcome Sensei Adam Schmaltz. I'm going golfing later today, which is why I'm wearing my only collared shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, dude, I was laughing the other day because I like, I go to the gym and then I see myself and I'm wearing sweats. It's like, I feel so blessed to be able to go to the office and wear sweats and nobody bats an eyelash, you know what I mean? That's like the dream. Yeah, that was part of the lure, man. Whenever I saw like jujitsu coaches, I would, you know, when I was learning jujitsu, I would, just, they would always be in board shorts and sandals. <laughs> and I was like, man. That is, that's cool that you can just wear board shorts to work. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I always thought that. Yeah, I hear you. I was never really a sandal guy until I started at the gym. Um, you know, it was kind of a closed toes. We don't, we don't wear a lot of sandals in Arizona. And so I've never like really gotten to surfing or anything. And then finally it's like, all right, I got to kind of cave. Like you're always just going to slip them off and step on the mat anyway. It got really annoying, like kicking off my toms or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah. I hear you. Dude, I've been watching a lot of instructionals lately, and I, I had like a like a realization. Um, why don't more people in jiu-jitsu play front headlock? It's like such a common position in wrestling, and there's so much that you can do from there. There's like the guillotine, the darts, the anaconda, Peruvian necktie, Japanese necktie. If I just want to pass the guard, I can like yeah. do a quarter Nelson. You know, there's there's so many easy options from there. Right. It's kind of like it's like why go through all the trouble of getting the leg in and taking the back or like passing the guard when you're already like attacking the head and neck, you know? Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think I agree because I like to play top turtle. I mean, obviously you want to be in the dominant spots, right? Like side control mount or the back, but like in the top turtle game, uh, a lot of people, I don't know. I don't know why they lack like attacking options from the top turtle, but like you said, the front headlock and back attack options and some other you know, like things, especially with gi, and you got a lot of a lot of options there. Um, yeah, yeah. I I find myself there all the time. Yeah, me too. And I I prefer it. Like people want to turn away into turtle when I'm passing the guard. I want that. I want I want to take your back, but my clock choke sucks, and I don't play a lot of crucifix. You know, so. I figured. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? You have to be, I think that's one of the things about top turtle is you have to be versatile because the person, it sort of depends on the per, what the person's doing. You know, you can force some things, but you know, like you're going to look for openings. You have to be, you have to be good at 
like creating diversions, you know, because it's such a defensive position that if you let that person just um, sit there and like lock up, it's going to be hard to get an opening. So you have to be good at um, like creating a situation where they have to block something and because they block that thing, you can get something else. Right. You're setting a trap. You make them think one thing and then you go for the other. You know, like making their hand base. Or, yeah. It's kind of like the mount too, right? Because once you mount somebody, they're, they're just fully defensive, right? In the back too, right? Once you get there and they just like like protect their neck and lock up, it's hard to get a direct submission, right? Unless you get it right when you get there, right? Before they, before they get to put their defenses up. But after that, after they put their defenses up, it's very difficult to just do like a one move. I mean, if you're really good at it and you just force it to happen, that's one thing. But I found like, you know, like Ezekiel and, um, uh, you know, armbar options from the back. And then if you're in the turtle, the same thing, you can go for like lapel or Ezekiel and um, the arm in Ezekiel choke uh, just to get them to like have to defend. And then you can like maybe get a hook in or something. Yeah. Yeah. I struggle a lot with exactly what you're saying. Like I have a, I, I do a good job of like getting to those positions. But then like once you're in mount or once you're on somebody's back, it's going to take me like 20 minutes to even, even think about tapping them. And I think it's just cause like my game right now is so rudimentary that I'm like arm bar, you know, oh, okay. That didn't work. Choke. Okay. That didn't work. You got to kind of like lace them together, you know? Yeah. And sort of create like a, a, a cascade of uh, bad things happening to the other person. You know what I mean? Like just like yeah. get them on the run sort of play the psychological game too, where if you like just uh, make sure that you're the one on the hunt, you know what I mean? And they're just on the run. Yeah. Sort of, you know, it, it makes things go in your favor. That's kind of the game I like to play. Um, it's just attack, 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 attack. Once you get there, I mean, obviously you have to set everything up. but Yeah. No, I know, like that, like that guard passing series that you showed me, where it's like you go for leg drag, he legs over, you hop over to this side, he turns over, you go for the star pass, and it's just like seven attacks later is is when you get the one that you actually wanted in the first place. Yeah, the right. persistence, right? I mean, you have yeah. to have the stamina to do that, but like if you can have that guard passing style, that stand up, um, yeah, like you're doing, uh, you know, throw bypasses, leg drags, uh, uh, you know, switching to knee cutter, coming back, like hopping over the other side, a little cartwheel, like moving around like that like bullfire like if you're doing those type of that type of game um you know you have to have the cardio to do it but it's uh it's it's i think that's the best way to pass because you get the person drowning you know you're one step ahead of them all the time they have to react to you and they're moving back and forth um the problem with that sort of style is once you pass the guard a lot of times you're really tired so you have to like control the position if you have a guy that's really good at recovering guard it can be sort of demoralizing because you'll just sit there and pull like a seven pass you know combination and 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 get the guy and then all of a sudden old butterfly hooks in now he's back to guard and you're just like you have nothing left right like you could you could be it could work against you also sure yeah but i guess a good another good part of that is like when you keep somebody on the run like that, they're not thinking about working their offense from bottom, you know, they're just, yeah, that's the idea. Right. Because like everyone's trying to get their, their position, right. Their, their grips um, and their angle. And as a, as a guarder, if you let me get, you know, my sleeve and my heel or my sleeve and my lapel or whatever game I'm going to get, 
man. Uh, it goes both ways. I mean, if you're constantly attacking from bottom as well, I mean, you know, the reason why guard is a powerful position is because it is dangerous, you know, for the passer. Um, but it's only dangerous if you're offensive, right? I mean, if you're just sitting there, like there's two ways that, that uh, I guess, like intermediate players guard, right? One way is don't let the guy pass. And that's sort of a losing idea, I think. If you, if you just don't let somebody pass because they're yeah. going to figure you out, right? Um, you have to be creating threats. That person needs to be running from you and barely staying up and you're getting knocked over. Even if you're not sweeping him, you're knocking him down. He's getting up. You know, you're getting him in different grips and positions and you're going for sweep attempts and submissions and threats. And, and, and I mean, I've been on both sides of it. You know, I've been stuck in people's guard that are just basically eating me a lot. You know, like just, you have no time. You figure every time you posture or break a collar, another grip happens. And, you know, that's, it, I think it, I think it goes both ways. You know, if you're on top, it's just you have to learn how to play like that. You know, and it takes a lot of practice and preparation to be able to play attack style guarding or passing, because you can't be thinking about anything, right? You have to just be able to just chain things together without like hesitating or stopping. Because once you take a breather, that person resets, and then it's like another chance for them to go on the offense. You know? Right. Exactly. Yeah, I remember one day I was like teaching the 11 o'clock class, Sensei and you were both busy. And, uh, and I like walked around and I said, what's your go-to guard? What's your go-to guard? What's your go-to guard? And most people's answer was, don't get passed. And it's like, well, how long is that going to last? Like you're playing on defense. So you got to imagine that my offense is going to be better than your defense. You have to be offensive from the bottom. And like I read that Jiu-Jitsu University book and the purple belt chapter is all like, it's, it's all about guard. And they're saying, you have to be the first one to make grips. You have to set the tempo. You have to be the one on attack. And then the brown belt chapter is all about guard passing. It says, you have to be the one to make grips. You have to be the one on the attack. Plus you have gravity on your side. So you definitely shouldn't get wrapped up in anybody's guard, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is. I mean, yeah, it's basically creating opportunity, right? Like, you know, right now, since, uh, you know, I'm not training as much, what I'm doing is um, sort of exercising my mind and, I, and I'm doing it you know, through the game of chess. And it's the same thing where a, a, a really good, creating good opportunities, right? Like attacking pieces and making them react to your moves instead of doing their own ideas, getting them into, like backing them into a corner is huge. Um, you know. That's the it's, concept of tempo, right? Yeah, tempo is like a little, yeah, it's like, like, it's like, Tempo is like making them lose a turn because they have to move like the same piece again, you know, like, like if they move their bishop out and then like you like move a pawn up. So like, like it helps you complete development or something, but they have to remove that piece again. Right. So like mm -hmm. they lose, they lose a move. Right. Like, because you know, you, you're working on position. Right. So let's say like in jujitsu, how you would, how you would properly use tempo in jujitsu would be like if you're working on your body position and they're making grips and you like strip a grip off and then advance a little bit. And then the next thing they have to do is make a grip again. Like they've, they've wasted time making a grip and then you've stripped it off and then you've advanced and then they have to make a same grip again. Like if they're trying to control your sleeve, let's say like you're in, um, Let's say you're in like half guard, right? 
or like knee shield and the person like has your sleeve, right? I think the correct use of tempo in jiu-jitsu would be like if you break the sleeve grip and then as you're breaking the sleeve grip, you like put in you know, like a staple or like a hook with your foot or smash their knee down. And then like they panic and go right back to the sleeve grip again. So you're like, you're in the same, they're in the same uh, position like because they have your sleeve, but like you've smashed your legs together. So you've advanced, right? So like you've advanced, but they had to waste a move getting back to where they were. Right. Basically. So it's like you, you gained a free opportunity basically is what it means. It makes sense. Where they had, yeah. Where they had none. I remember when I was wrestling in college, it was like right after I graduated, I was, I was still hanging out in the room, getting the next class of guys ready. And there was this guy who had graduated before me who came back named Matt. And he was like, Hey, let's wrestle. And from the moment that he put a grip on me, I felt like he was in control. Like, he didn't waste a single second. And it was just me like constantly backing up, you know, it was, he, was, he went from this trip to this trip to this shot to take me down to here. And it was just like, he just had chains, dude. They call it yeah. wrestler. Like I didn't have any opportunity to do anything other than defensive. And my defense was basically meaningless against him anyway. That's, I was like, that's how I want to make people feel. I want you to feel like you're drowning. Like you're on the run, like you described. Yeah. And that, that the, I, I guess it's not an issue, but the thing with, playing like that is that you have to be prepared you have to drill you have to know where you're going to go you have to have these go-to things and i'm i'm running into that same thing right now in chess where i have like a couple openings and as white and as black and like if i play those lines i know like i know what's good and what's not to a certain extent but once i get outside those lines i'm not prepared if somebody's moving quickly i'm i'm like I get cooked quick, you know, cause I'm just like, wait, yeah. what's, what do I do? And I had to figure out, like, you don't want to have to like, especially in jujitsu when nobody has to wait for your turn. Right. Um, right. You don't want to get caught in a situation where you're thinking about what needs to be done next. You yeah, know, definitely. like if you're thinking about what needs to be done. Uh, you're already, you're, you're already, behind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. It's, it's not good. That conversation that we had at the Mama Cat's parking lot cracked me up where you're like, you're sticking to the main line on your opening and then you're like, he's going to do this. And then he doesn't do that. He just does some totally like errant move where you're like, what? I wasn't expecting you to do that. And then somebody who has a little bit better of an understanding would be like, no, that's actually a great thing. You do this, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's another thing that happens too. And everybody can realize this in the jiu-jitsu world where you're like, you learn a move from your professor, right? And then the person's like, look, you're going to grab the lapel right and then you're the guy's gonna posture up right cross grip the lapel the guy's gonna posture right and then you like you're doing it and you cross grip the lapel and the guy doesn't posture and you're like oh my whole move relied on him posturing and he didn't <laughs> posture uh and then as an expert you're like well then did you loop choke him and the guy's <laughs> like oh wait no you know like he, like in reality right when we're teaching this theory we're saying, like, look, a very competent player should do this because if they don't, they're going to be in danger, right? Um, and so uh, a beginner will not recognize that, you know, uh, you know, like free opportunities when they come sometimes, you know? Like the person, like, you, you didn't teach me what happens if the guy puts his foot here and then we're, like, laughing, like, oh, well, then you just full lock him, right? But, like, <laughs> but, uh but they don't know the move yet, right? So how do they yeah. know that that's bad, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So you've been playing a lot of chess. You told me that you're lifting, you're skateboarding. How else are you staying busy? 
Yeah, I mean, honestly, it is. I, 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 I'm trying to learn chess. I mean, when you're old, in the chess world, 34 is old. Uh, these kids are learning when they're like five. So, like, when you're <laughs> playing chess, I have many wins as I do losses, but it's, uh, it's an interesting game, you know? Like, uh, I wish I'd learned it when I was younger because um, I feel like it's like learning a new language. It's, it's really cool, though. And then the fact that the similarities that it carries over to jiu-jitsu are huge. And I think jiu-jitsu, knowing jiu-jitsu has really helped me um, in learning chess because I'm sort of like, oh, yeah, like this is something that we do in jiu-jitsu. This is similar, you know. I mean, obviously it's different because it's a board game, but it's um, – you know, emotionally, it can be the same. It can be very frustrating when you lose. Uh, you know, I've learned some pretty cool concepts along the way, like that quote I sent you by that guy. I don't even know who said it, but uh, but it, it it really it really got me thinking about jujitsu games. You know, and and um, uh, the guy said that uh, I was I was I was researching. I was frustrated with uh, losing in chess, and the guy was saying, "Look, you're going to." First, when you start playing, you'll be, you'll be playing uh, like a mediocre game, right? You'll be playing a game that's flawed. And then you'll become like successful making flawed moves against um, other mediocre players. And you'll think that those moves are really good, right? Because you're winning with them. But then once you go to like a competent player, um, you'll find that your whole style is actually wrong, right? Your whole style is actually suboptimal, and no, you won't get away with the same stuff that you've been getting away with with lower-rated players. And it got me thinking a lot. I mean, that happens in jiu-jitsu all the time, right? You get a guy that's successful with some sort of, like, you know, trick technique, right? And then um, he's catching everybody with this weird move. And then, you know, you see that, and you're like, well, all I have to do is just shut down that move. And he's got nothing you know right and then once you yeah. nullify their little trick you know it seems like they're a beginner again you know yeah it's like when i went to uh the baddest blue i showed you the footage afterwards and you saw like a lot of the guys don't shrimp and escape when they're past guard they go for the fly trap or they go for like a baseball choke from bottom and it's like well if i can stop that then you're pretty much screwed right yeah that's a bad idea right because like again if somebody has a good sense of side control in the top position you're not going to be able to catch them in like darces and, and fly traps from the bottom and stuff like that. Like it's a mistake to get caught from there. Right. It's, it's because I think also in, in the, in the intermediate levels, it's a bit of arrogance on the, on the top players part. Right. They're sort of playing like they, they shouldn't be able to get tapped out. You know what I mean? They, they're playing like they like, Oh, I'm on side control, you know, but you're going to get baseball bat chokes from the, bottom if you don't pay attention right you, you're not invincible right it's the likelihood of success is in your favor right it's not that you're right. you're supposed to succeed it's that you just you just have more of a chance that's why that position is you know uh, sought after right because the likelihood of your success is greater than theirs but yeah any moment you could slip and get caught Dang, um, i just had a light bulb moment i just had a light the way that you put that the likelihood of success that really just kind of like hit me with that aha yeah, that's what it's all about. It's about creating the likelihood of success. And you know what I've been, you know, the way to succeed at anything, right? At anything. And this sort of, uh, this sort of kind of takes the magic out of just about anything. So, um, <laughs> this is great. Can't wait to yourself here. <laughs> uh, the, 
the way you succeed is to get good and in an area right where other people aren't good and bring them to that area right i mean that's what everybody does right like if you think about every good player right every like star jiu-jitsu player that you can think of they have a position or a grip or some sort of thing that's novel or that's novel to a lot of players right um, they use fundamentals. They, they're, they're not, you know, they're not just a one trick pony, but they have this refined area, right? Whether very it's nice. deep half guard or worm guard or 50, 50 guard or very bolo or whatever it is, they have this refined area. They force you into their world, right? Where they're king, right? Like that's it. They're king. And that's, I mean, that's what jujitsu itself was in the beginning, right? It was like, like, look, you guys are good at standing up and punching me in the face. So I'm just going to bring you in down here where I'm good and you have no idea what's going on. It's going to be easy for me to win because I'm an expert down here. Right. right? I mean, that's, that's how, that's, that's what jujitsu, that's how jujitsu God's fame, right? It's because it was like something different, right? Um, still following the fundamentals of defense and self-preservation and all that. It's not like you're being sloppy. But, uh, um, yeah, that, that's sort of it's, – it's not a very romantic way to look at it because, in the end, you're just like – you're just challenging somebody. It's like, it's like, oh, I'm a, you know, woodworker and I'm a brick mason. Well, I'm challenging you to a woodworking competition. Right. Darn. I hear you. Right? Like, you know, like, yeah. at that point, you, you, what are you going to do, right? I mean, the expert's going to win every time, right? So, yeah. um, you know, if you can figure out ways to bring people into your world – right? That's how you win. You know, that's how, yeah, that's how, you know, and, and then it just becomes, then it comes down to who's better at getting you into their situation. Right. And that's a right. skill in itself. Yeah. That, that tug of war to kind of get them into your world. I talked to Josh about this a lot where it's like, I think that's why Milo was so successful with footlocks because so few people at our gym have ever seen him, you know? And it's like, think about how many hours you spend defending somebody passing to your right. Right. We always pass to the left. And then you pass to the right and you make them defend on their left and it's like they're a white belt again, you know? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I do that all the time with guys who play uh, reverse de la Hiva. I don't like passing against the reverse de la Hiva, even though, I mean, I like it now, but like guys that play reverse de la Hiva primarily, I always pass to their opposite side. I always pass to their opposite side. De la Hiva is pretty versatile, but the reverse de la Hiva, like I feel like it's vulnerable enough where when you throw them off on the opposite side pass unless they're refined in that in that side um i think better opportunities come out, out of that so yeah i like to pass to the right on people that come in and reverse the lahiba when i'm passing to the left so this is something that i struggle with because it's kind of like i like to play de lahiba on the left side you know i have my go-to guards on the left side and then i like to play like x guard or whatever else on the opposite side and my my question is like should I be doubling down or finding more good things that I'm good at on one side, or should I try and become good at everything on both sides? Yeah, I think, I think that's a good question. I think my advice would be become competent on both sides, uh, but you're going to have a strong side. And I like the idea of having different things on different sides because it makes you a little bit less predictable. I mean, if somebody really studies your game, like if let's say that you're like on an elite level and people are just analyzing your game, at that point, you would have to be good at both sides, right? Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, I like the idea of, yeah, I like to do – if I get one leg in, I'll, be, I'll go to X guard. If I get the other leg in, I'll do something else, right? I'll do a butterfly hook. You know, if I get 
you know, if I get uh, De La Hiva on one side, I'm going for, like, you know, back take opportunities. If I get it on the other side, I'm going for a stand-up single, right? Like, yeah, I, ha I have definitely, and passing, too, you know, if I pass, you know, if I'm doing X pass or knee cutter pass, you know, I like to go to one side. If I'm doing, like, under passes where I go under the legs, I like to go to the other side, you know. Um, smash pass, I do both sides the same. Um, you know, it just it just depends on the pass and yeah i mean it sort of shuffles the deck a little bit makes sure makes your opponent keep guessing but mm -hmm. but yeah i mean i don't know i guess it just depends on your success you know and, and who you're playing yeah yeah that's yeah. something that I'm, I'm i'm struggling with a little bit right now it's like all right so when somebody passes to my left should i try and go to my go-to guard on my right side like i'm playing daily heaven and it's like super uncomfortable because i'm not I've, I've got white belt reps on that one side you know so yeah. like, should I just try and force something that isn't there or should I just take this opportunity to get good at that? Something that I'm already kind of have a good understanding of just on the opposite side. As far as grips go, like you should, like, I would, I would suggest getting um, good, like at, at, at getting the initial grips for control and positional on, on both sides. Right. But like what you do from there, it, it, it could be different. Right. So like, like if I if if I get my left foot in on a deliva hook, I think I'm more versatile on that side because it's just a more common way because people usually mm -hmm. lift their right foot, you know. Right. But if I get the deliva hook on the left side, I'm working stand up singles, right? Like that's gonna be my my go to. So I don't want to be sitting down with the deliva on my right side. Like I've I've I'm not as good, right? To, to just sit there and play the Lahiva and try to off balance and take the back and burn bolo and all that stuff. That's, I, I'm not as good doing that on my, with my right foot. So right. basically what I'll do is just work my, like, you know, spread them open, pass the lapel of the sleeve through the legs and then stand up like real quick, stand up with the leg. Cause even though like, I feel like I have a better opportunity and even if they break away now we're standing up. Right. So let's go. Now we're going to go takedowns again. Right. Yeah. Um, at least you're not guarding anymore. Yeah, so so at that point, it's almost like I'm resetting everything. It's like I don't want to be here. You forced me here. I'm gonna like get back to some sort of neutral position, or you know what I mean, like at the very least. Yeah, if not a more favorable position. I hear you. Yeah. Are you like are you like itching to get back on the mat, or is this kind of like a welcome break for you? You've been doing this for a long time. Uh, first I was not missing it. I, first I was like healing. You know, I was um. I was feeling good. I was like, you know, starting to exercise a lot more and starting to feel good about my body. And uh, I guess a couple of weeks ago, I started like feeling the urge to come back again. And I feel a lot better as far as um, my game plan goes right now. I, I'm starting to sort of evolve, I think. Uh, it's given me a lot of self-reflection time and, and time to um, sort of think more strategy, you know, think more strategically. And uh, it also helps my passing that I've gained a couple pounds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. I saw yeah. that picture online not too long ago, and it said uh, it's like me going back to the gym after quarantine. There's this guy with this giant, like, swelled head because he had just learned so much. And, oh, yeah, I said that to you because you're, we were talking about chess, and you were saying, yeah, that's me after I bang my head after losing again. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, and I've always found, like, because you know me, dude. I'm at the gym every day for as much time as I can be. 
and I've always been this way. And whenever I like had to take a week off for vacation or whatever, when I was wrestling, I would come back and you would just feel fresh and you would just dominate. Like there's, you can only burn the candle at both ends for so long, you know? And then I think that rest is an important part of development. It's an important part of growth, you know? And so I think this is going to be a good thing overall. What it boils down to is uh, efficiency, right? And how efficient you can, you can apply the techniques, you know, and, um, you know, your brain doesn't want to keep up, keep reinforcing uh, all these motor pathways that you don't use. Right. So, um, what'll happen is as you start to, when, when people say get rusty, right. Um, what that means is it, it, it just means that in order to, um, provide stability and accuracy in your movements, your muscles have to be more tensed up than usual, right? Because your the neuro pathways that, that were very reinforced started to, I mean, if there was no need for them, if you're not performing those tasks on a daily basis anymore, um, it's not as, well, to put it in a term everyone uses, it doesn't feel as natural, right? It doesn't feel as loose as it was before right you'll be you'll be tensing your muscles up like on both sides for instance like if you want to move your wrist right if you want to move your wrist down flexing it or extending it I, if i flex both sides right i'm expending a lot of energy right if i flex both sides but if i'm just like loose and i just flex one side well then there you go right it's it's a little bit of energy right you're not using a lot of energy but when you're sort of uh, rusty, right, how they say rusty, what that means is like you're out of practice and because you're not performing those movements, your body hasn't allocated the resources to reinforce those motor pathways anymore. So basically you're just kind of like guarding, right? So you're kind of tense and that net energy output is higher, even with the same um, net movement, right? So if you have the same, you can look at two people moving in the exact same way. They weigh the same their body composition is the same, they're the same age, everything's the same. But if one person is practiced in one task um, and prepared, uh, they will actually exert less energy performing the same net movement, right? Because um, they're efficient. And, um, you know, coming back, a lot of people are going to have to deal with that, right? They're going to have to say, look, just, it's, you know, I mean, you're going to get it back. It's going to come quick because you remember how to do all this stuff. But you have the first week or two is going to be you're going to be tired, right? You're going to be really tired funky. after rounds. Yeah, you're going to be tired. You're gonna you're going to be slower, right? You just got to get back into it, you know. And that's I mean, luckily for me, I've been doing it like pretty much nonstop for 15 straight years, so it hasn't really hindered my game at all. But uh, someone who's been training for maybe like a year or two, they might feel, um, you know, they might feel, wow, I, I used to be able to roll for. 30 minutes and now I can only roll for five minutes. Right. Um, yeah. And it's just, basically it's just telling your brain that you want, these things are important again, right? Let's do this. Right. Let's yeah. do this. Yeah. It's like, if you don't use it, you lose it, you know? Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly. I'll never forget the first time that you shared this analogy with me where you were talking about, think about how hard it is for a little kid to walk with a cup of water when they're like yeah. struggling to hold on to the water. Where you could just be like chewing gum and talking to your friend and walking with water. You know, right, you know, right, water. right. Yeah, because they're trying not to spill it, right? So they're, they're, every bottle, like their calves are flexed, 
right? Like they're carrying this, bot bot uh, this water bottle or this water cup down the hallway, right? If you can imagine a young kid carrying a cup of water. Um, and yeah, it's just because they don't have that, like they reinforce motor pathways. Their body has not um, adapted to just effortlessly carrying a cup of water and balancing it, you know? Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I hear you. So you touched on, you started this 15 years ago. You know, I don't know very many people who have done jujitsu for that long. Like I've ran into, of course, there's a couple of those, like those OGs who've got three or four stripes on their black belt, you know, maybe seven if you're like one of the super old school dudes, you know, but like jujitsu has not been that popular for that long. I remember you told me when you first started training, there was like one option. You could go to a gym in Oceanside that had jujitsu and it wasn't even like their, their primary discipline. Yeah, like it was a jiu-jitsu school, but like the way he had it set up uh, was like you could only train as a beginner twice a week and they were still charging like full price. And I was a, I was like a high school kid, you know, and I was like, man, I can't afford that for twice a week. And I, I did the math and I had, you know, I mean, I can't remember where I worked at that time, but it wasn't paying enough to, to, to invest in that. And it was tough. And yeah, there wasn't a lot. And even when I started, you know, all my friends that I grew up with, like, none of them wanted to do it. Like, they all thought it was karate, you know? They all thought it was, like, I was going to be, like, breaking boards and stuff and yelling. <laughs> um, and I was like, no, dude, this, this is really cool, guys. Like, you know, there's boxing and there's, like, jiu-jitsu and then there's, like, all this stuff that you could do. And and they were just, like, they, none of them really understood, I don't think. Um, and I was kind of on my own. Like, nobody I knew did it. And I just... I joined it because I remember like hearing like, man, like you know, people that are excelling grappling, you know, once they get you to the ground, it, you know, it's over. Right. Uh, and I remember hearing that and I was like, wait, what? No way. Like I, I couldn't believe that at first. And then uh, we had some like these old Gracie in action videotapes, the VHS tapes. Um, and we watched them and then we were learning the moves and we're like, wow, this is cool. You know, like in my back, yard you know and then uh and then i was finally like okay let's join a gym and i just pulled the trigger i was just like i went there and i was just like yeah i'm signing up and i just signed up and i've never stopped you know that was in 2005 yeah how did you come across those tapes or like what started your interest in jujitsu in the first place uh actually my friend when we were in high school it was probably like 2003 my friend's mom got those tapes from a garage sale and then with those uh with the gracie and action videotape set there was a tape of uh ufc one uh and there was a documentary also she bought this whole thing i don't know who was selling this but um i'd like to know who sold that you know what i mean like who that was like it was so long ago there's no way of finding out but um there was like a documentary about uh like the whole situation, like the whole like UFC situation, right? And it was about kind of like the Gracie family and like the whole grappling and everything. And I remember my, my friend going, because he watched it before I did, right? And he was like, there's this family of grapplers. And if they get you to the ground, they'll beat anybody. And I was like, no, that's not true. And he's like, yeah, they'll beat anyone. Like nobody can beat them. And I was like, Dude, you like what are you talking about? And then I watched the, the the video, and I was like, "Oh, dang, these guys are like crazy." And that's kind of like the, my first exposure to to BJJ was like was like this tape 
of like the documentary of the Gracies. And I was like, dude, this is crazy. And then we started like inevitably trying all the moves on each other in the backyard and everything. And um, yeah, just they, there wasn't a school nearby, you know, that I could, you know, justify going to. There was, you know, Paolo was in Encinitas, uh, and I had no, I, I didn't even know about it, um, him. And then uh, this guy Marcelo was in Oceanside, and I was talking to him on the phone like three or four times about trying to sign up, but I just was like, man, I can't, I can't do that. And then, you know, I inevitably signed up uh, with Paulo in, uh, cause he moved to San Marcos, you know, that was the, that was the reason um, I signed up because I was like, man, I can't, I'm not going to drive like as a teenager, right. With gas prices and with, uh, with, uh, you know, not making a lot of money, I couldn't afford to, do all of that, you know, like to drive, you know, 30 minutes to train or whatever. And, and it seems like, it seems like not that far, but like at the time, like right now I could definitely drive 30 minutes easy, but at that time it was like, it, it wasn't worth it for me. I was just like, no, I, I'm not going to do that. Sure. And I didn't know how, I had no idea what, what it would be like, you know, uh, maybe if I, traveled back in time and I could tell myself just to do it maybe I could do it but like you know what I mean it's like um at that point I just wasn't willing to and it kept me away for another about another year and then and then once it moved one I knew I wanted to train it train jiu-jitsu and I had other friends that had some grappling experience that like were uh like teaching me like random random moves and it just got my got me way more interested and then finally when Paulo opened up uh, in San Marcos, I joined right away. That's crazy that you just came across it by chance, by some VHS tapes at a garage sale that kind of led you down to this path that 15 years later is something that you're still involved with. Yeah, I've always been interested in martial arts. Like I took like Taekwondo when I was a kid. And then my, my dad had these like karate books at home that I would, I read and like, I always liked like martial arts movies and stuff like that. So I was, yeah. I knew, I mean, I'd always been interested, right? And uh, we were kind of a rough group of kids growing up. So we, you know, fighting was not um, a super big deal for us. We would always get in scraps and fights and stuff. So it was kind of like, I, I didn't shy away from uh, like physical contact, right? So it was like, it was very welcome to me when I saw jujitsu and what it was. And I was like, okay, this is cool. I got to do this. I can't believe that you didn't wrestle in high school. Yeah, you know, I think it was just, I, I didn't, I definitely should have. I just, I would have loved it. Um, I didn't know what it was, though. I didn't know how powerful it was. I didn't know. I didn't have anybody saying, look, this is, this is so valuable. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's just been popularized so much, like you said, kind of with the UFC, you know. That's, that's the one that's gotten Emmett and Josh and even you, like, involved in this, myself to a certain extent as well as, like, this is where we really saw the first success. Like you said, for the longest time, people thought the most effective way to fight was just to stand up and throw strikes, you know? And you're like, there's no way that grappling can be so dominant. Like you would never think that being on somebody's back would be so effective until, you know, you witnessed it in action. Yeah. And, and, and you know, the way I see it is just di different strategies. You know, there a lot of, you know, I don't see grappling as superior. I see it as an option that I like. Right. Yeah. You know, because because remember, I'm not a very like I know I don't I said I didn't shy with your physical contact or fighting or whatever, but I'm not like inherently a violent person. So like 
what why grappling is appealing to me is because I can fully dominate you and break your will without like physically harming you. Right. Right. Whereas like a striking art, right. Uh, to succeed is to hurt, to succeed is to damage. Right. If you succeed in boxing, you've damaged the other person sometimes very, very badly. Right. Um, if you succeed in Muay Thai, right. I mean, you, that just means you've kicked them in the face or need them in the face or something. Right. Like that's, you know, I, and I'm not that like I don't get pleasure out of like like hurting somebody like that, right? No, it's the opposite. Um, you have empathy. You wouldn't want to be in the receiving end of that. Right, right, and that that's I think why jujitsu is so appealing to me because I still could you know like get in physical uh, you know matches with people, and you know I don't I didn't have to go against my nature like I. It's not in my nature to, to you know, cause like you know, lasting physical harm on somebody, and, yeah. uh, and that's why I believe too that grappling should be the only form of self defense for for kids in school. Like I don't think karate should be. I don't think boxing should be. I don't think anything for for school age kids, like young kids, right? Grappling is where it's at, right? Because you have the choice. I mean, could you harm somebody? Yes, but there's way more control because it's slower, right? So. You, if you just take somebody down, pin them down, and just break their will, you can totally dominate them. But in the same sense, like, you don't have to, like, maim them, you know? You don't have to, like, uh, you know, like, break their nose, you know, or something. Yeah, you don't have to crack uh, somebody's ribs or their skull. And like you no. said, it's called lifelong damage. You can, you right, can right, right. demonstrate that you have the ability to, uh, to incapacitate them, and that's more than enough. Right. Yeah. No, that's definitely, that's definitely true. I think, you know, I've been saying for a long, long time, like just positional grappling, right? Like not even submissions for kids, right? It's positional grappling, like just understanding dominance, right? Like being able to just like break the will of, you know, a, a person is huge, right? It, I think, I don't know. I, to me, I wouldn't want my kid learning how to punch somebody in the face because when it came down to it, he would have to punch somebody in the face, right? Like you don't have another option because I also don't want to be like, yeah, don't defend yourself. Right. So if you want your, if you want your kid to defend themselves, but you don't want them to break somebody's nose, what do you do? I mean, Oh, just no, just, just don't fight. Just tell a teacher, just do this. But hey, you know what? You want to you want somebody growing up. You don't want to grow up like that. You want to be able even if you're you don't win, you want to you want to be the one to stand up for yourself, right? You don't want to be the one that just cower, right? And that's yeah. important, right? Like beating the fear, right? Beating the fear of bullies, beating the fear of getting beaten up is 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 very important. I mean, there were guys that I went to school with that were bullies and, you know, uh, thank goodness my, my, you know, my dad taught me that, you know, you should stand up for yourself, you know, do what's right or whatever. But I've stood up to people that I know could have just beat me up super bad. <laughs> you know, like, right. like I was like, no, I'm going to stand my ground. And luckily a lot of them actually respected me after that. You know, they were like, look at this kid. He's like, you know, half my size, but he's just, you know, he's there, you know, he's there. 
he's not backing down. And I think, you know, I didn't really learn that until like the beginning of high school and middle school. I was sort of like, not sure. Like, I think maybe eighth grade, it started where I was just like, no, like, I'm not going to let you do this. Right. I'm not going to let you tell me what to do or do whatever. Um, it didn't happen often to me because I wasn't really a confrontational person, but you know, inevitably it happens to every kid, I think, you know, right. um, where they come across a situation where fear could take over. Right. And if you don't stand up for yourself, you will hurt for much longer internally. Right. Cause you'll always question yourself. You'll say, Oh my gosh, I wasn't able to do that. What kind of person am I? Am I just a coward? All this stuff is going to ring through your head and create this, you know, situation. But if you just have the confidence to just stand up for yourself, and I'm not saying hurt people, I'm saying, look, I know what's going to happen if you come at me. I'm going to have these go-to things that I'm going to do to you or try. And if you win, you win. But it's not going to be easy, right? Like, and, and that's, you know, that sort of mindset paired with the knowledge of how to control somebody without hurting them I think is a great recipe because now you're, you know, obviously we don't want kids punching each other in the face, breaking each other's noses. But um, let me tell you, I mean, until you've been dominated on the ground, you don't know the power that that has, you know, yes. like, until yeah. you've been smashed and you can't breathe and you can't get up and the guy's just a wet blanket on top of you. I mean, you know, and then you can, I mean, at the end, that person usually doesn't really get hurt. You know, you can stand up and their ego's hurt, but they're, but their body is fine. Right. And like you said, if it even comes to that, because most of the time, those, those people who are being confrontational tend to prey on the weak. And if you just stand your ground, like you're talking about, that's enough, man. And, and that lesson translates to adulthood really well as well. Like I have a buddy who he's like five, three, and he's been thinking about pulling the trigger and doing jujitsu for a long time, but he hasn't actually done it. And the dude can't sleep at night. He can't sleep at night because like, he doesn't have that confidence in himself that he could handle it if it were to, he could handle himself if it were to come down to it, you know? And like, I sleep great at night, you know? I, I know that yeah. I've got the kind of experience where it's kind of like, this is something that I've rehearsed for thousands of hours. That if it were to come down to it, it really wouldn't be that unfamiliar. And again, just having that confidence, that ability to stand up for yourself and know that you could, you know, not necessarily get the best of one of those situations, but at least handle yourself is, uh, is, a lesson that so many people go without that I think is tremendously beneficial. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, I can remember a scenario that happened when I was in sixth grade and two of these guys, uh, got in a fight and one of them was like this, like he was known for fighting real problem kid. I mean, you know, probably came from a broken home and he was, he was just, he would fight all the time. Right. So everyone thought that he was such a good, uh, fighter and this other kid was really really quiet but no one knew that he like actually was a black belt in taekwondo um and you know it sounds silly but um no one he knew anything and uh these guys got in a fight and i can't even remember like if anybody won because you know at that age it's not like what well, who's gonna say who won right um <laughs> but but uh, after that people were like like regardless of the outcome they were super surprised at this one kid who never got into anything and uh he defended himself very well you know like it was like a a very good scrap and everyone was very surprised because like if you ask them a hundred out of a hundred people would say that this kid would get slaughtered right and uh he held his own um 
And if anything, you know, he, he probably won, right? So it was, it was, it was, um, that was the first sort of uh, time where I thought, I saw like, man, if you just stand up for yourself, if you just like go after it, especially if you're the underdog, you know? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. But then there's the issue now as an adult looking back, there's the issue of safety, right? And if we're worried about kids' safety, um, I say grappling all the way, you know? I mean, grappling, you know, aside from getting thrown, I mean, doesn't really hurt as much, right? Yeah. And I bet you that kid got left alone after that. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the only time he ever – he ever did anything and why well, I, I guess in, in that in that like era in the yeah middle school life but yeah no um there's countless there's countless examples of this you know we don't have to go i, I guess i don't have to justify it it's just it's just something that not a lot of people talk about you know because martial arts are known in schools like teachers and and uh and school districts even they know that that kids in martial arts have are usually um uh, well-behaved, disciplined, and confident, and, you know, uh, it's no secret that martial arts are, are good for development, but um, what kind of martial art, right? What kind of, like, what do you want to teach these kids, basically, right? Um, and that's why, you know, a lot of times, you know, I, I go to jiu-jitsu tournaments and see a lot of jiu-jitsu schools teaching, you know, very young people how to, you know, choke people out and break people's arms, and that I think also is a little too far, right? Like you want somebody to be able to render, you know, you want your five-year-old kid to be able to render somebody unconscious. That's also a tricky situation, right? That's why, yeah. you know, in, in our normal classes, we don't teach that, you know, until, until they're a little older, and more mature. Yeah. When did you start teaching the kids? Did you start teaching kids first or adults? Uh, adult first. Um, I, I started teaching the 7 a.m. class. Uh, in 2009 but uh the kids I just actually would come early to class and I would just like um there was a kids class before the adults class right and sometimes I would just get off work and go straight to the gym and so I would be there like an hour early and I would just throw my gi on and just you know help out Paulo um, coaching the classes and it was just strictly volunteer and I probably did that for like a year it was not, it was, it was just like, I was just like, yeah, hey, don't worry about it. I'm here really anyway. Right. And I, and I would just coach and, and learn. And uh, as soon as I started getting more comfortable, he offered me the opportunity to be the like assistant coach for all the classes. And then it kind of grew from there, you know, and I, and then I got, got an opportunity to teach at another gym um, uh, for uh, like four years um, you know, helping me refine my skills. And then, and then I got an opportunity to uh, go full-time at, at SDBJJ. So that's what, I, I mean, that's what I wanted all along, but you know, it was, there were, there was other guys teaching there at the time uh, that were sort of like before me that, that had more experience than I did. And uh, through, I guess, fortuitous circumstances for me, um, it became like, Paolo just needed somebody to come in full time. And I was like the next in line, you know, dude, done. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. yeah. So kids and, probably, and- I would say like 2011, I started helping with the kids class. Yeah. And it's changed quite a bit since, uh, since you got started over there. I know we've talked a lot about like the adventure based learning class that you took when you were in grad school and 
you know, some of the other things that you've implemented since being there? Yeah, you know, my outlook on teaching kids has changed for sure. Yeah, my, my, my undergraduate degree, I spent a lot of time, um, you know, uh, learning how to teach kids. You know, I took a couple physical education classes and child development classes and stuff like that. And it, it really did help. Um, you know, it just, there's some techniques that you just, they're not intuitive, you know, they're not like something that you would just figure out through experience. Um, you know, somebody did, but the average person, there's no guarantee that you would just, just by teaching kids, figure these things out, you know, right. It's uh, stuff that I wouldn't know unless you told me. Right. Right. Or maybe you, maybe you'd figure one of them out. Right. But like, but it's hard for somebody to just naturally come up with these things, especially if they're counterintuitive, right? Like just, you know, like, like um, the biggest thing would be uh, punishing students with exercise, right? Um, that's something that is actually the opposite. Like if you're talking about intuition, because um, when you, you know, when you say, Oh, you were misbehaving, you do 20 pushups right now um, to an untrained, uneducated person that would seem like super effective right they, they like immediately have to be punished with this task that they don't want to do uh you know and then and then uh the next day you look at them and you say do you want to do 20 push-ups and they say no and they behave it seems like it worked perfect right um but in reality right if you're looking for talking about the long game right because that's what we're all doing with these kids right um, they start developing a uh, negative association with exercise. And then uh, over the years, they just become sort of, they develop like a, a, almost like an aversion to, to doing exercise because that's what they had to do when they got in trouble. And, you know, for the, for the 10, 15% of, of kids that are just like natural athletes that love sport that will never stop, that may not affect them as much, but for the vast majority of the population, um, if you ask adults right now if they like to exercise, the answer is no, right? It's uncomfortable. It's a pain in the butt, right? You know, all this stuff. And uh, the last thing you need, uh, uh, you know, for motivation is also associating that with being punished, right? So um, like seeing exercise as a punishment, um, isn't the way to go right so you know i never would have thought of that i never would have been like oh this doesn't work because it works like it obviously in the short term is a very effective way to punish somebody right it's like run a mile right now right like run a mile and it's like dang right the kid lays his head and starts running i mean we've all experienced it right growing up that was the punishment i mean that was it right even the physical education teachers back in the day they all did it and it's not, it's not, they weren't bad teachers. It's just like the information, nobody really thought about that far ahead, right? Nobody really thought like, this could be like getting people to see exercise in a negative way, right? And nobody really thought about that. All right, a few people did anyway. But now the information's out there, right? But yeah, so definitely changed my outlook on how to, how to do things. I mean, it wasn't just that, obviously, it's a lot of other things. But that's a really good example of how you know, you wouldn't really think of it. Yeah. One conversation that we've had too, is that you want to kind of up the ante of what it means to be a martial arts instructor. You know, how about people say like, oh, your coach shouldn't be your counselor or whatever. Where you're like, well, actually I'm, I'm a certified counselor. Like I can be that, you know, <laughs> what you're talking about. 
Yeah, you know, I'm thinking, look, uh, people have a weird, so, so martial arts has changed, you know, and I just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not satisfied with, with, uh, you know, oh, you can, you can be a martial arts instructor and, and make money and, and, you know, and, uh, it doesn't matter what people think, you know, but I like. I like knowing what I know, right? Like I put myself through graduate school. I, I didn't have to get my master's degree, right? I did not have to, to do what I'm doing. I can be in the same position right now without it. Uh, but the knowledge that I have of, of exercise, right? My degrees in, um, uh, you know, motor control, bi biomechanics, you know, it's kinesiology, but it's with the emphasis on how we learn, right? And if I'm going to teach physical movements to people, I thought, wow, what better degree to get than the science of learning new movements, right? The, the science of learning how to move your body, right? right. So, so yeah, I mean, I think, it, yeah, it's why can't I be, you know, an expert or, or experienced in one field and also in another, right? When I hear that, oh, your, your, your coach is just your coach. Your coach is just your coach. Yeah, that's true. Some coaches, that's all they do, right? That's all they do. They're not skilled in other areas, right? But I don't see why you can't be, right? I don't see why you can't have a degree in nutrition, right? And then and coach people through eating, right? I, I don't see why you can't have a degree in counseling, you know? And I feel like a lot of martial arts instructors should have a counseling degree. Like if you are interested in going to school and you're a martial arts instructor and you want to get a degree in some random thing, take some sort of like social working or counseling. Because a lot of people look up to you. A lot of people, like, why, why can't you do that, right? You know, is it just because you're lazy? Is it just because you want to take a firm stance and say martial arts instructors shouldn't be counselors? Oh, no, you should go to a counselor for those problems. Why are you talking to your coach? Well, you have a lot of trust in your coach, right? Dude, you put a yeah, lot some of, of the biggest lessons I've ever learned have been through my coaches. Yeah, yeah, it's huge, right? And, you know, it's time to, to, to take away the negative connotations that there are with, like, physical education teachers and coaches. Everyone's like, oh, like, the big oaf that doesn't know how to do anything. The, the, you know what I mean? Like, like, there's, like, this image that people get of, like, a PE teacher or a coach or a gym coach, right? And today it's just not true, right? Today some of the smartest people I know are trainers. Like, and I've had conversations with a lot of different people, and some of the most rich conversations I've had or with people that are in some sort of like gym atmosphere. And it's, it's totally different, completely different now. And, uh, you know, people just have the old school view of, you know, oh, you know, he couldn't hack it. So he became a teacher or, right, you know, your last you know, resort. <laughs> yeah. Like something like that. And to be honest, you know, that's just an old way of thinking. People who are saying that are, are, you know, they're either trying to make their self feel better about the decisions they've made or they're, they're stuck in the past. You know, they're just stuck, um, you yeah, know, I mean, and that's I, fine. I don't do this because I couldn't do anything else. I do this because it's the thing that I want to do the most. And I really understand, like, the gravity and the weight that comes, you know, when you, when you step on those mats as an instructor, you know. Like, I really feel like my purpose in life is to help people learn the lessons that I've learned through going through those difficulties that can only be found in that kind of environment. You know, I want to help facilitate those lessons for so many people that, that I've witnessed personally that never get to go through that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. And uh, I think just it's, it's time now that, you know, as instructors, we live up to this new, um, well, it's not quite an expectation yet, is it? We need to create an expectation. You know, we need to create like a standard. And, you know, um, yeah, there, there are gyms, right? Like, let's say you're an elite athlete and you just need to be part of a gym where you just go there and train and you're under the guidance of a coach and his job is to get you the connections and the training necessary for you to succeed, right? And in that, can, and in that sense, you have a sports psychologist you can talk to. You have also a whole team of, you know, nutritionists and all that. Um, at that point, yeah, your coach should be a coach and leave it to the experts, right? Leave your nutrition advice to your nutritionist. Leave your, you know, um, you know your, your problems to your sports psychologist or whatever, right? Um, but nope, but, but on a recreational gym level, um, these people don't have those resources, right? These people don't have, they're not going to spend money on a nutritionist, a sports psychologist, a coach, you know, uh, you know, like all the, they're not going to do that. They, they're going to join a gym, not knowing the psychological issues that could come with joining a gym. Right. You, I mean, there, there are issues that come up that you never thought about. Right. And if a coach can provide good insight, right. I think they should. And, and my thing is, uh, you know, the more capable you are in those areas the better coach you are so you know these people saying that coaches shouldn't give advice um i agree some coaches should not give advice <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because some of them you know what i mean like <laughs> you're not a leader by any means in any other sense that you're just good at jujitsu or good at wrestling right like yeah there's definitely there are definitely those people right and uh you know maybe those people were just meant to be a coach maybe those people were just meant to create beasts right just create a team of 10 savages and win the world championships, right? That's fine. I'm not saying don't do that, but, but bundle all coaches into one, you know, into one thing, right? All jujitsu coaches are not the same. Um, so if somebody on social media says that my coach gave me advice and then some other person chimes in and says, coaches shouldn't be giving advice, probably because you just had a coach that was, not equipped to give advice right i mean their anecdotal experience might be different than yours and you know yeah so yeah. i think you know you have to look at it in a more individual way too definitely and i've kind of accepted the fact that i'm not going to be the best athlete in the world and maybe not the best you know technical instructor in the world but um but that doesn't mean that i can't you know kind of accomplish my purpose and you really uh I don't want to say challenged, but encouraged me to kind of become better in that regard, which is why my, my classes are starting on August 31st, Childhood and Adolescent Development. You'll learn a lot of things, you know, um, that, uh, you know, that help you with guiding, you know, kids and, and uh, groups of kids and different ages of kids and the problems that can occur, you know, I mean, you have issues with that all different ages, you know, I mean, on one hand, you have like a little five-year-old boy who's just a ball of energy running around. You can't make him sit still. And you think, oh, man, this is hard. And then you have like a group of 12, 13-year-old girls, right? And they're drama. And you're like, okay, well, maybe I'll take the five-year-old kid. Right? <laughs> yeah. you know, um, each group comes with their own uh, their own set of hardships, right? And, 
And if you're not versatile and you're not equipped to handle that, you know, it's just, uh, it's a shortcoming as a coach, right? It's a shortcoming for, for uh, uh, somebody in, in the role of, uh, of a coach, I think. Yeah. I just want to make sure that I'm not making anything worse by giving the wrong advice. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, you know, like, you can say right and wrong or whatever, but there, there's definitely um, a variety of ways to approach certain situations. And if you're not familiar with sort of like best practice um, ideas, right? Like what if somebody comes to you with a serious issue, right? Um, and, and knowing whether or not you have the capacity to um, guide them is also huge, right? When should you look for outside help? When should you um, uh, talk to the person's parents instead? When should you, um, you know, what, what level of communication, right? Um, these are all very important. And if you're just like a guy that breaks people's arms and then you, you know, you come across like a complicated issue like this, um, you know, it's, it can be difficult, right? Somebody can make the wrong decision um, very easily. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So like I said, just trying to do my best to make sure that I'm, uh, that I'm doing the right thing. Not everybody, or what is, what is that saying? Like nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something, you know? And if I can't answer right. it adequately, then I'll point you to somebody who can. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So I got one more question for you and then I'll let you go. What's, uh, what's the biggest takeaway or one of the lessons or maybe some of the lessons that you've gotten from training? The biggest, okay, the biggest lesson I've learned. Um, I think the, the biggest lesson I've learned from training is like the, the, the value of, I don't know, I guess not the value of hard work because I kind of learned that before jujitsu, but like kind of reinforcing that where it's like, you know, um, I have this, I have this uh, theory, and I've already told you this, I think, but uh, the theory is that um, it's like the law of being average, right? Like, I, most people in this world are average, right? That's, that's the definition of average, right? The, right? Most people in this world are average within one standard deviation from the, from that, from the mean, right? Most, that, if you're looking at a standard bell curve, and you take one standard deviation from either side, right? The vast majority of people who have ever existed lie within that hump, right? With, within that area. And, um, you know, I, I, my whole life I have felt like I was uh, stuck in that area. I could not become, uh, you know, like anything I did, I didn't feel natural or gifted or, uh, you know, super intelligent or whatever. Right. And, um, one of the things that I thought of earlier on in like probably my, or later on in my teenage years, early twenties, maybe was, you know, if I'm going to be average, right. And let's talk about jujitsu. Why don't I become an average purple belt? better than I am now and then once I reached that I was like yeah I'm pretty good right I can, I can beat a lot of other purple belts right maybe I'm not the world's best but why don't I become an average black belt and then I became an average black belt I'm winning at least 50% of my matches against other black belts okay why don't I become an average competitive black belt right 
Okay, so I'm just upping the ante every time. And maybe I'm not the best black belt in the world, but what's the next step after that? Uh, become an average black belt in the elite competition circuit. So what about IBJJF, right? Okay, what's next after that? Become an average player in the world championships, right? Okay, what's after that, right? You can keep going, right? So like, you know, if you're playing the law of numbers, and this is just, it just helps me look at it, right? Because sometimes you just feel defeated. Sometimes you look at, because there are people that are, you know, that are definitely above average, right? There are people that are uh, athletically gifted, very, very intelligent, um, had a lot of opportunity more than the average person. And so in that sense, it sometimes feels defeating to try to go up against somebody like that. Uh, but when you look at it as just, okay, what is the, the next level of uh, the next tier of something that I can achieve, right? You know, I was the first person in my family to go to, uh, to, to seriously go to college, right? To go to college to try to get a degree in my immediate family. And so I was like, okay, just do it, right? Just become like an average college student. And then um, after that was like, okay, well, I want to get A's in all my classes, right? So in order to do that, I have to study more than I'm doing now. And then I got, and I was able to get A's in most of my classes, right? And I was like, okay, well, now I need to get accepted to a university, right? Because I was in community college. Okay, well, I get accepted to the university. Well, now I'm a student there. How do I get at least to average, right? And then, okay, if it's a C average, how do I get past that? Oh, I'm going to get an A. What does the average A student have to do, right, to get an A, right? Okay, well, this is what they have to do. All right, then I'm going to do that, right? Well, started getting A's, right? Okay, graduate school, right? Uh, no, average students don't go to graduate school. Well, what does the average graduate student have to do to get into graduate school? Do that at minimum, right? Okay, cool. Now, now there's a bunch of people that you could do. Okay, well, I want to get good grades as a graduate. What does the average graduate student have to do to get an A, right? Like, uh, you know, you just keep doing it that way, and you're always in the middle of that, that curve, and you're always able to uh, succeed in what you set out to do. It's a realistic goal, right? Um, it's really great to aim high and aim for above average and aim for elite and everything like that, right? Don't get me wrong. I mean, that's, that's another goal, right? But sometimes when I get frustrated with that, right? I mean, I always think like, you know, what is an average astronaut, right? What do they do, right? What is an average, you know, like, you know, pick anything. Like, what, what does the average NFL player have to do to get to the NFL, right? Right? Because there's, I mean, there's levels to people in, in the NFL, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you see, you, I mean, there's guys in the NFL that are on, on, you know, third string, right? And you never heard their name. You never know them, right? But that dude's probably pretty good, right? Like, that dude's <laughs> probably pretty good. He's just, maybe he's not, you know, the ultra star, right? But, uh, but he's making pretty good money still, and he's, he's in the NFL, right? So that's, you know, you got to think about that, and then it's, you know, when you look back, you've done some pretty above average stuff along the way, right? But like, it's just, you know, it's helped, that mindset has helped me. And that's something I've learned from, from I guess it's helped me in jujitsu. It's like, okay, you know, how do we, how do I make myself? And then, and then once you get used to that, you say, well, how, how can I be an above average coach, right? How can I be an above average player? After that, you're building on something that already exists, right? 
instead of just having this dream of being world champion without any base or whatever, and you're going, you don't have any idea what it takes to even be an average jiu-jitsu player, to even, to even learn the game, right? To even learn the moves. Like, what is it like to be just a competent black belt, a capable, competent black belt? Somebody who, when you go to another gym, you know, they go, yeah, dude was good. You know what I mean? Like, everyone's shaking their head like, wow, respectful, skilled, great guy, right? You don't want to go to another gym and have them be like, oh, who gave him his black belt, right? Like, you know, you don't want people to say that. So if you, in my mind, if I visit a gym, another gym, and I leave, and I don't see this, but the people are going, yeah, pretty good. That's a win for me, right? And anything else is just gravy, right? It's extra. And, and, and I'm not saying don't shoot for the extra, right? I'm saying, yeah, once you get that to that point and you've achieved it, it's a really good firm, like, like a stepping stone for you to stand on and go, okay, now the next step, right? Become a little bit better than this, right? Now become a little bit better than this, right? No, not everybody gets to just shoot straight up to the top, right? And for me, you know, it, it's always taken a lot of hard work and dedication. And I, I've used that, that sort of concept of thinking about how to, you know, instead of going, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to seem misleading and say, like, look, just, just settle for average. Because that's not really what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, like, I used it to improve myself when I felt overwhelmed and that I couldn't become elite, right? That I yeah. couldn't become the best. It like, it's be a daunting. way... Yeah, sometimes it feels like a little much. So I'm not saying don't shoot for the stars. I'm saying that sometimes when you feel overwhelmed and you feel like you're never going to reach um, the elite group, um, you know, uh, it helps with like self-doubt and self, um, you know, like questioning your own abilities. And um, that concept has helped me improve when I felt overwhelmed, right? Um, but uh, by no means am I saying just settle, um, you know, just settle. I'm saying like, you know, if you feel like there's no way to proceed, there is a way if you just look at it a little differently. Right. You're not saying to settle for mediocrity. You're saying kind of look at it as a, as a one bite at a time, like in an incremental, you know. Right, because right. Because it can be discouraging when you're shooting for the moon, right? And realizing, you know, maybe only 1% of people ever really accomplished that. But you can take a more um, a more realistic approach, I guess. I'm I'm struggling to find a better word than that. To uh, to really put into perspective the things that you've already accomplished and the things that you're capable of accomplishing. Yeah, yeah. And one important concept that I learned in school that really helps with this is like when I was in like the like the base nutrition class that we take. When your when your discipline is kinesiology, you take quite a few nutrition-based classes. And one of them, they give you this little triangle, right? This little triangle. And it's on one side, it says balance. On the other side, it says variety. On the other side, it says moderation, right? And it seems like such a simple concept, right? But if you think like that, balance, variety, and moderation, it gets you through a lot of things. I mean, if you can just achieve that, like that's like the first thing that you should be able to achieve in all, all, most things, right? Like if you, if you're talking about optimizing, right, if you're talking about, um, you know, becoming like, you know, top tier, I think a good step first would be to like, you know, get down, you know, to be able to, 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 to do those things, balance, variety, moderation, 
and 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 you know, and as far as jujitsu concerned, like be technically sound at basic stuff first, right? Like, are you a balanced player? Do you know all positions equally, right? Do you have one move or can you do multiple different attacks, right? Are you just training one thing way too much or can you like diversify, right? Can you train other, other aspects of jujitsu, right? Can you do takedowns, right? Can you do, you know, guard retention? Can you do passing? Can you attack? Can you submit? Can you escape? Like if you have, see a lot, a lot of times, like circling back to jujitsu, what we see as, um, as, as outsiders is, oh, look at this guy um, playing worm guard or playing Bolo and, and look, this game works for him, so I'm going to learn it. But what we, don't, what, what we don't see, right, what I see, because I've been following these guys for way longer than their little shtick is right now, is that they have super, super good fundamentals, right? Like, they know how to punch the underhook and take the back. They know how to chair sit and roll. They know how to chase the back. They know how to sweep and guard retention and grips and position and angle and all this stuff. And after that, they sort of developed this unique part of their game, right? They sort of said, look, I'm going to get good in this area, bring people to this area and beat them. Right. But I think what a lot of talking about earlier. Yeah. So I think what a lot of beginners are thinking is, well, if I just harp down on the Baron Bolo, I'm going to be like that guy, right? Um, but that's not necessarily true. You know, you have to – like those guys, if you watch their games or if you watch them in, the, in, the, in, the, in their own gyms, you're going to see like they're really good at knee cutter pass, right? They're really good at under over-under pass. They can take your back. They can get the mount, right? Like I bet you if you played with like these, these bottom player guys, elite guys, you would be surprised at how strong their mount is compared to the average black belt, right? Like you would be like, wow, I can't believe the Meow Brothers have an insane mount game, right? But it, it, it may not be insane compared to Roger Gracie, but it's insane right. compared to like 99% of people who train jiu-jitsu, right? So a lot of people, they, I don't think they see that. And I think that they, they just go right after this one thing. They train as much as they possibly can. And, uh, you know, building that foundation first, that foundation of basics, right? Um, that's, that's another thing that jiu-jitsu has taught me, where if you can just build that foundation of basic knowledge and then off of that, you know, become unique, that's, right. I think that's where it's at. I remember, I think it was a conversation that you and I had where you talked about, like, the stages of learning or the phases of learning and there's mastery, right? There's a complete understanding of something and then comes innovation, you know? Then you can start doing something unique once you have a complete understanding. I think you're talking about uh, Bloom's taxonomy and that's, you know, you know, you learn something and, it, and, it, and the way I like to equate it to jujitsu is, you know, knowledge, understanding, right? You start to understand something. Then application, you're starting to apply things, right? Then there's analysis, right? When you're doing sort of like cost-benefit analysis, which is good, why is it good? You know, you're choosing between bad and worse or between good and better, right? Not just between bad and good. That's sort of the entry into high, higher order, you know, learning. And then there's synthesis. And that's when you start to sort of incorporate your own things, right? You're, you know, you're starting to sort of like take ideas from one person and another person and blend them together in a way that, you know, is unique. And then there's creation, right? Which is kind of like composing when you're like, you know, a, a good music, musical artist 
can play other people's songs, but a great musical artist can compose their own music. Um, so that's when you're creating, it, it's huge. And then, you know, there's also in the mix there somewhere is evaluation, right? Where you can be um, evaluating. So creation and evaluation tend to sort of switch between the top dog, right? Like you can sort of evaluate um, without creating, but the ability to create yourself usually helps out in the evaluative process, you know? So yeah, different levels of learning. And um, in the beginning, you know, knowledge and understanding and application, the, the sort of, I guess, the lower parts of that pyramid of learning um, are super important, right? You can't just go straight to creation or else you're going to be uh, breaking fundamental guidelines that um, it just would make your creation weak, right? Right. What was that called? What taxonomy? Uh, uh, Bloom's taxonomy. It's like a, it's basically a hierarchy of learning. Um, and they have one for sport, but I like the one, I like the one that I was just describing um, when I compared to jujitsu because jujitsu is, it's more of an art, you know, it's more of a, um, it's very complicated, you know, it's not just uh, uh, your out, your physical output, right? It's, it's your, it's your creative, it's your, it's, it's everything, right? It's like a blank canvas. It's more like an art form. Um, you know, uh, but yeah, it's a, yeah, I, I, and that's, you know, as, as an evaluator, that's part of how I evaluate people, right? In jujitsu. That's how I promote. Like if I'm, if you're asking me, does this person deserve their blue belt? I'm looking at a, a general level of understanding um, of jujitsu and, you know, it can be, you know, they could have different attributes, but are they generally in every position able to understand what, what's going on? Purple belt, analysis, right? Um, application happens during the blue. So if you're saying third, fourth stripe on blue belt, I would say, are they able to apply the moves that they're learning in real time against somebody who's resisting, right? Are they getting these successfully? If they're not, there's some sort of problem. Um, Purple belt is analysis. For me, purple belt is a very analytical belt. It's where you should be able to start, like I said, choosing between bad and worse, choosing between good or better, right? Uh, Cost-benefit analysis, um, uh, thinking critically about, about techniques and submissions, uh, being able to spot sort of um, techniques that are not technically sound, right? What, being able to watch YouTube and go, this one's for me, this one's not for me, right? I'm going to try this one, invest time in this, this one not so much, right? Um, and then brown belt, you know, it starts getting a little bit tricky. Synthesis, you're looking at, you know, in a lot of positions, you're doing sort of unique stuff now, you're making it your own, right? You're sort of, you know, blending this lapel choke with this positional advancement with this, you know, attack. And, uh, you know, it might be unique. I've never seen that before, or I've never seen it done in that way, or, you know, that, that way. And then black belt is, yeah, creation, um, sort of like being able to create uh, scenarios that, you know, not just like taking one thing from somebody else and, and blending it with another, but sort of creating your own, you know, using the basic tools of jujitsu, creating your own sort of system in a way, right? Like a whole game, right? And then, uh, and then also evaluate, right? To be able to, you know, look at somebody else and know exactly where they lie on that, on that pyramid of that hierarchy of learning and 
being able to guide them and help them to the next step and everything, you know? Boom. Beautiful. Anything else you want to add? No, man, that's, that's, that seems good. We'll leave it open to maybe another one in the future. Yeah, I would love that. Man, it's, it's amazing. You've come up on every single podcast. I mean, we've only done five of them so far, but in one way or another, everybody has mentioned you. And, uh, and yeah, I would love to do another one in the future. And you got a lot of good stuff to say. You know, I've, I've told many people this before, but your opinion carries a lot of weight with me. And I've learned a lot, you know, not just about jujitsu, but about life and people from you, especially teaching. Well, not especially, but in addition to teaching kids. So I appreciate you. And, uh, and yeah, I would love to do this again. Well, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. All right, man. Take care. Okay, thanks. See ya. And there you have it. Thanks for listening. Sorry about the feedback on my side. You were hearing my audio echoing on Adam's side, but uh, luckily Adam did most of the talking, so it wasn't too big of an issue, and I've learned from it, so it won't happen again. Uh, be sure to subscribe so you'll be alerted when new episodes are released, and check out SDBJJ on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and at sdbjj.com. Take care. Oh, 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 o